The reports came pouring in. The British have broken into our forward trenches. The frontline trench is lost. The enemy is pouring down the main road through Martin Buisch in massive groups. A German staff officer named von Praetorius, Reserve Infantry Regiment 231, the Somme, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 23, Psalm, the Battle of Flair Courcelette, Third Strike on the Psalm, Part 1. Let's kick it off with some light housekeeping this time. Uh, last episode, I said there was to be an attack on Teakval by the British Reserve Army as part of the 15th of September attacks. That was incorrect. Oops. But on the evening of the 14th, Tommies of the 9th West Yorks and 8th Duke of Yorks attacked and took over the Wonderwork redoubt and sections of trench to the left and right of it, thus pinching out an annoying German salient in the line there. Also, kind listeners, Sam and Tigers Tim alerted me to my continuing bad pronunciation of English names. So I can apparently get the French ones down, but not the English ones. They very patiently advised me that it's pronounced Warwick, not Warwick. Again, oops. Tim also very patiently told me that as an American, I have absolutely no chance of ever being up to snuff on correct pronunciations of English names, and I am very much inclined to agree with him. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I will keep trying. So if anyone out there has a helpful guide on how to properly say the names of towns and cities in the UK, please don't delay in emailing me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up uh, on Twitter at at www1podcast or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. This is hugely important, so many thanks in advance. The next couple of episodes uh, will cover a lot. 11 divisions were in action on the 15th of September, 1916, and we're going to visit them all. The presentation will be told through the extreme left, where Reserve Army provided support, and then 4th Army's left, right, and center sectors of the attacks. In this episode, we'll cover Reserve Army's actions on the extreme left, and that of 4th Army's 3rd Corps on the left of the 4th Army front. As the 14th of September, 1916, gave way to the 15th, 1,500 British guns blazed an artificial daylight of stark, harsh flashes behind 4th and Reserve Army lines, hurling thousands upon thousands of shells towards the German front lines and points behind them. Along the tortured gash across northern France that was the Western Front, this was nothing new. But here at the Somme, 
The German lines were erupting terrible pustules of roiling orange bursts and flames. This bombardment, now entering its third day, was being carried much better by the now seasoned British gunners. Nearly three months of constant on-the-job training had increased the skill level of the artillerymen, and the more complex barrage highlighted their gains. High explosive rounds were chucked out at the German wire entanglements, one important lesson learned since the 1st of July. HE shells were the best-known artillery ammunition for destroying the enemy's barbed wire fields. Gas shells impacted among the German artillery gunners, making their life an utter and potentially deadly torture. Long-range fire disrupted known communication and supply points. Shrapnel shells lay stacked behind the roaring guns. These were to be used during the creeping barrage. On the receiving end were thousands of beleaguered German soldiers, stuffed into deep and foul-smelling dugouts where they were available, but otherwise crouching for dear life in narrow trenches and muddy shell holes. Reserve Lieutenant Hermann Kohl of Bavarian Infantry Regiment 17 situated northeast of the smoldering ruins of Martin Puich village near High Wood, was one of those thousands. During the early hours of 15th September, a forest of guns opened up in a ceaseless, rolling thunder of fire through the Forhovald High Wood, Flair Martin Puich Corselet sector, Cole later recounted. A sea of iron crashed down on all the front and support lines of the area, the noise was terrible. Impact after impact. The whole of no man's land was a seething cauldron. The work of destruction grew and grew. Chaos. It was impossible to imagine that anyone could live through it. Square meter after square meter was plowed up. It was like a crushing machine, mechanical, without feelings snuffing out the last resistance with a thousand hammers. The artillery prep for the next major British attack on the Somme wasn't perfect. In fact, there were deadly flaws to it. But it was better than what British gunners had been capable of just a few weeks ago. From Corselet Village in Reserve Army Sector to Lousy and Bollocks Woods east of Guillemont, Shells crashed down on a sea of dirt and flame along the German lines and in between them. On the extreme left of the attack front lay the Canadian Corps, which manned Reserve Army's line from Mouquet Farm to a point below and between Corselet and Martin Puich. The Canadians were no strangers to the Western Front. At the beginning of the war, the people of Canada had a strong sense of connection and duty to the king and crown of the British Empire, and Canadian men had rallied to earn the king's shilling. By October of 1914, some 31,000 men of the Canadian 1st Division embarked for training in England. By April of 1915, those men were locked into the Second Battle of Ypres. Additionally, a privately raised unit the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, was in France by December of 1914. 
By the time of the Somme, there were enough Canadian divisions in the field to form a Canadian Corps under the command of General Sir Julian Bing. It was here that the Bing boys became a wartime nickname for my neighbors to the north. The 3rd Canadian Division was stationed between Mouquet Farm and the Fabek Graben, or Fabek Trench, which was located to the southwest of Corselet Village. The 3rd Canadian Division would be in support. Facing Corselet itself was the 2nd Canadian Division, which would carry out the attack on the village. This was General Goff's plan to support the 4th Army's flank with a diversionary attack. Corselet was another small Somme village that lay on the western side of the albert Bapaume road about a kilometer and a half up from Pozières. Its importance lay in the well shaft of the sugar beet refining factory south of the village along the old Roman road, which the Germans used to provide water for troops in the area. The ultimate objective was Candy Trench, some 1,200 yards away and on the southern edge of Corselet. The bombardment here was crashing down on the Germans until it suddenly stopped at 4 a.m. on September 15th. The time for the main attack by Rawlinson's 4th Army was to be 6.20, and Paul Reed, battlefield tour guide and author of Corselet, noted that after 4 a.m., the hours leading up to zero crept slowly onwards. This is an odd gap between the barrage and the attack that doesn't come with much explanation, but it doesn't matter as the Germans found a way to fill the intervening time with an ambush. This was pretty ballsy. As soon as the bombardment stopped, the Germans knew what was coming. So they went over the top and came at the Canadians, a total reversal of roles. On the left side of the albert Bapaume Road sat men of the 20th Central Ontario Battalion, and to the right of it, the men of the 18th Western Ontario Battalion. The Germans slammed into these units, and a vicious firefight broke out. It was touch and go for a while as men of the 19th Central Ontario Battalion in reserve rushed up to support the defense. The firefight was still going on when 6.20 came, and that was zero hour. The best thing to do when you're ambushed is to attack your attackers, and this is what the Canadians did at this time. Over the top and through the attacking Germans went the mass of tough Canadian troops, dissolving the ambush. By 6.35, the German front line was taken. The fighting was merciless. One of the main points of interest to me about World War I is that it was the old world meeting the new, and there were still many examples of battlefield honor occurring. But that was changing, as we saw at Highwood when the Germans thoroughly machine-gunned the wounded British, and in return, a group of 150 surrendering Germans were similarly mowed down. The pitiless nature of war on the Western Front was hardening the hearts of the men desperately trying to survive in it. And when supposedly surrendering Germans instead threw grenades at their captors, things went savage very quickly. Private Lance Catamol, 
was a soldier in the 21st Eastern Ontario Battalion that followed right behind the attacking units. Near the sugar factory trenches, he came upon more surrendering Germans. Suddenly, we came upon an enemy trench to our left, in keeping with our no prisoners order, in view of the past German treachery, this trench was being mopped up and the occupants eliminated. The trench was already half full of dead enemy and here and there, little columns of steam rose in the cool morning air, either from the hot blood let or from the urine I understand is released on the death of any human body. Two Canadians stood over the trench, one on the parapet and the other on the parados and they exterminated the Germans as they came out of their dugouts. One young German, scruffy, bareheaded, cropped hair and wearing steel-rimmed spectacles, ran, screaming with fear, dodging in and out amongst us to avoid being shot, crying out, Nine! Nine! He pulled out from his breast pocket a handful of photographs and tried to show them to us. I suppose they were of his wife and children in an effort to gain our sympathy. It was all to no avail. As the bullet smacked into him, he fell to the ground motionless, the pathetic little photographs fluttering down to earth around him. On the left of Private Catamol's battalion and brigade, the 31st Alberta Battalion was also charging across no man's land toward the general vicinity of the sugar factory and sugar trench to the factory's left. Private Donald Fraser, a member of the 31st, survived withering machine gun fire and was creeping towards the German lines when a strange and curious sight appeared. Away to my left rear, a huge gray object reared itself into view and slowly, very slowly, it crawled along like a gigantic toad, feeling its way across the shell-stricken field. It was a tank, the creme de menthe, the latest invention of destruction and the first of its kind to be employed in the Great War. I watched it come towards our direction, how painfully slow it traveled. Down and up the shell holes it clambered, a weird, ungainly monster, moving relentlessly forward. Suddenly men from the ground looked up, rose as if from the dead, and running from the flanks to behind it, followed to the rear as if to be in on the kill. The last I saw of it, it was wending its way to the sugar refinery. It crossed Fritz's trenches a few yards from me with hardly a jolt. The tank was late to the action, however, and with another tank, the creme de menthe returned to its base camp. But it was on the battlefield, and it will make contributions elsewhere. The Canadian attack moved on to Fabic Graben and to Corselet itself. At Fabic Trench, the men of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry got lost in the shell-shattered wasteland in morning mist and walked into the middle of the German lines. It worked in their favor as the Germans around them immediately threw their hands up and headed towards Canadian lines as prisoners, relieved to be alive and out of the battle. As the day progressed, the 25th Nova Scotia Battalion made its way towards the eastern edge of Corselet, where they were met with German machine gun fire from the village. Despite murderous losses, 
Lieutenant Colonel Hilliam rallied his surviving men and ordered a bayonet charge from 200 yards away. The audacity worked as the Nova Scotian soldiers smashed into the German positions and cleared them out. From here, the French Canadians of the 22nd Battalion, nicknamed the Van Dues, rushed into Corselet to clean it out. These guys were no joke, and it was known that, quote, this kind of fighting, this battling through the maze of half-ruined cottages, wrecked gardens, and tumbled walls was exactly to the taste of these eager and wiry Frenchmen. The variety of it, the scope it offered to individual adventure appealed to them. Into such individual adventure, they threw themselves with zest. A fiery sergeant, having captured a store of German bombs, loaded himself with them and set out to put them to the best possible use. He bombed a dugout crowded with Huns. He rushed on to another and cleaned it up with equal effectiveness. He then, still single-handed, attacked a third, but was shot down before he could throw his bomb. In spite of the heavy casualties which they suffered from beginning to end of their advance, the French Canadians carried it through at a pitch of enthusiasm, which made devotion easy and sacrifice of no account. End quote. By the end of the day, Corselet's ruins were in Canadian hands. Some 7,200 Canadians were casualties between the 3rd and 2nd Divisions. And now came the job of holding the village and adjacent Fabek Graben against counterattacks. But as a diversion, they had done their job in spades. To paraphrase Professor William Philpott, the Canadians were well on their way to becoming the BEF's first-class shock troops. To the Canadians' right was the British Third Corps, commanded by General Sir William Pulteney. Pulteney was an aristocratic old sweat who'd done many, many years in the army, but all you really need to know about him is this. In summer of 1914, he came over to France as a corps commander. When he was finally relieved by Douglas Haig in early 1918, he was still a corps commander. In comparison, Haig came over as a corps commander and within a year and a half was commander of the expanded BEF. Rawlinson too began as a division commander in summer 1914 and by spring of 1916 was in command of the 4th Army. But Putty stayed right where he was, and when we get to High Wood, I suspect you will see why. Third Corps had three divisions in the front line, running from Martin Puich to the eastern edge of High Wood. From left to right, they were the 15th Scottish, the 50th Northumbrian, and the 47th London Divisions. At Martin Puich and the environs around it, the British bombardment had thoroughly smashed up the German defenses in and out of the village. The stunned Germans, still alive after the artillery storm, gave little fight to the oncoming Scots, except at Tangle South Trench and the sunken road that led from Martin Puich to Longueval. Reserve Lieutenant Cole 
of Bavarian Infantry Regiment 17 near the village, witnessed its defense. From the direction of High Wood, we can hear the sound of voices and confused shouting, which persists until the few remaining survivors, wakened from mental confusion, find themselves shocked back into the reality of the moment and fight on until the British flood overwhelms them, consumes them, and passes on. Wave upon wave, an extraordinary number of men, and there, between them, spewing death, unearthly monsters, the first British tanks. Our artillery does not fire a single round. All links to the rear are totally disrupted. Feeble resistance is offered in the sunken road and on the outskirts of Martinpuich. Small infantry pockets of resistance fight on, sending despairing shots snapping and barking into the oncoming masses. It is all in vain. The enemy is impressively and overwhelmingly superior in men and material. The British break through on all sides, breach after breach. The front line is overrun. The final survivors of Martin Puig fall into the hands of the enemy. End quote. Two tanks were allotted to the 15th Division. But tank D-23, under Captain Mann, broke one of its tracks on the way up. For those of you who don't know, breaking track is as awful as it sounds. But tank D-20, under 2nd Lieutenant Drader, was still coming along, and it clawed its way to Bottom Trench, only to find it empty of Germans. Drader's tank moved forward to Tangle Trench, and there the remaining Germans simply surrendered as quickly as they could. Drader then had to turn around and head back to his base for refueling. Running through the southern end of Martin Puig was Factory Trench, which ran west to link up with the sugar factory south of Corselet. This trench fell, too, and a link-up with the Canadians next door took place. After pounding the ruined village yet again with artillery, the two brigades in front sent in their jocks to clear the place. By 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Martin Buisch was in British hands. There were signs that the German defenders here had cracked. Relatively few bodies, but a lot of equipment left on the field. Later in the day, the Scotsmen linked up with other Tommies in the Starfish Line Trench to the north of the village they'd worked hard to get. To the southeast of Martin Puish and to the west of High Wood, the men of the 50th Northumbrian Division went over the top at 6.20 a.m., running into the morning mist and towards the German lines. Hook Trench, the trench to their immediate front, fell to waves of Northumberland Fusiliers by 7 a.m. At this point, crushing enfilade fire opened up on them from the hellish stumps of high wood, which had not been bombarded. More on that later. This was not their job, but the Northumbrian Tommies here now had to form a new front towards the wood, and bombing parties worked their way towards it. Casualties were heavy. Two tanks were in action here as well, with one helping to subdue Hook Trench until it, it was hit with two German shells. The other tank kept creeping on, laying waste to German machine gun teams and shredding the eastern side of Martin Puig with fire. 
The Germans were rousing themselves from the bombardment-induced stupor. They hit back by plastering the Northumbrians with heavy artillery, forcing them back. In the late morning, a counterattack also came out of High Wood, forcing the Tommies further back. Later in the evening, another trench closer to Martin Puich was taken from the Germans, and the Northumbrians were able to link up with the Scots to their left. The far right boundary for the Third Corps was held by the 47th London Division, a territorial unit raised from the neighborhoods of the Empire's capital itself. Full of salty and seasoned veterans of earlier battles, the division had battalions named after who the men were and where they came from. The Poplar and Stepney Rifles, the Blackheath and Woolwich Battalion. Notice I said Woolwich, not Woolwich. Getting better. The London Irish, the London Scottish, the Civil Service Rifles, and the Post Office Rifles, amongst others. These were the Tommies assigned the task of taking down High Wood, a thorn in the Fourth Army's side since the middle of July. The plan on how to accomplish this was controversial, however. General Pulteney, the Corps commander, had opted to have High Wood left clear of the preparatory bombardment. On some parts of the attack front, lanes were left untouched by artillery so that the tanks wouldn't have the additional stressor of negotiating the shattered ground. Also, it was feared that the frontline trace of the British in Highwood was much too close to the Germans to effectively maintain a bombardment. Pulteney had four tanks allotted for the 47th Division, and he wanted to push them through the wood and take it without any artillery softening up. Furthermore, he added, this would work because the tanks would have cover from the trees overhead. Let's pause here for a second. You've no doubt heard episodes 18 and 19 that covered the battle for High Wood from mid-July through the beginning of September of 1916. Remember those descriptions of the wood we covered? You remember anything about there being any leafy trees left standing? Yeah, me neither. That's because there weren't any trees left after two months of near-ceaseless pounding from the artillery. Pulteney has been labeled by historians as one of the biggest of the donkeys of World War I, referring to that saying of lions led by donkeys. And even his chief of staff said he was just one of the most ignorant people he had ever come across. Just to reinforce our mental imagery of what Highwood looked like at this point, let's take a quote from the late Terry Norman's excellent work, The Hell They Called Highwood. Quote, A wood only in name, ragged stumps sticking out of churned up earth, poisoned with fumes of high explosives, the whole a mass of corruption. End quote. See why Pulteney remained a corps commander the entire time he was in France? He had obviously never even bothered to get a look at High Wood, not even from a safe distance with binoculars. It gets worse, and his decisions meant death for many hundreds of men under his command. 
Both Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Ells, the BEF's new resident expert on tanks, and Major General Charles Barter, commander of the 47th Division, stated their opposition to the plan. High wood was nothing but tree stumps now, they argued, and the tanks would get stuck and then be useless. Pulteney refused. Major General Barter pushed against the plans more than once, but was flatly refused any other option other than the orders he had been given. So it went. The four tanks were to go through Highwood. They would be supporting the London Irish, the Poplar and Stepney men, and the Civil Service Rifles, who would be attacking the wood directly. Despite the details of the attack plan, these men were keyed up and ready to get after the Jerrys just across the way. It was high time that Highwood was taken. The Germans of Bavarian Regiment 23 opposite them weren't just sitting there waiting to be overtaken. Blessed by the good fortune of not being plastered with artillery like everyone else to their left, right, and rear, these Bavarians were busy calling down artillery fire on their enemy before the Tommy's zero hour of 6.20 a.m. They also raked the British trenches and shell holes with heavy machine gun fire. It wasn't a good portent of things to come. Zero hour came, and the London men crawled out of their trenches and ran ahead through the tree stumps, the shell holes, and the weeks and weeks of bodies towards their enemy. They walked into a wall of machine gun fire that cut them down by the dozens and then the hundreds. British officers and NCOs, so used to leading from the front, suffered heavily. Corporal M.J. Guyton of the Civil Service Rifles, made it through the attack and later recalled, That day, I saw sights which were passing strange to a man of peace. I saw men in their madness bayonet each other without mercy, without thought. I saw men torn to fragments by the near explosion of bombs, and, worse than any sight, I heard the agonized cries and shrieks of men in mortal pain who were giving up their souls to their maker. The tanks left a lot to be desired in high wood. A Lieutenant Robinson's D-22 tank went off course and tried to avoid all of the tree stumps and drove out of the wood. It then shot at some Tommies that the crew thought were Germans. Then it went into a shell hole and got stuck. Lieutenant Sharp's D-21 broke down on the stumps near the mine craters in Highwood, and the tank then drew German artillery fire, while it helpfully laid out a swath of its own destructive machine gun fire. Second Lieutenant Samson and his D-13 tank, nicknamed Delilah, Samson and Delilah, get it? Ooh. Actually reached and passed the German front line in high wood, blazing a path of destruction until it was hit by a German shell. The crew had to bail from there, but on their way back to friendly lines, they took a number of Germans prisoner. The last tank, C-13 Clan Riven, commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Strother, got stuck on a tree stump and was ditched just inside high wood. It was all a bloody mess. Highwood and the Germans inside it were a real problem. They had not only halted the Londoners' attack, 
but they were also laying down enfilading fire towards the Northumbrians, west of the wood, holding up their attack as well. But by mid-morning, five separate battalions were in the wood, hemorrhaging men while trying desperately to crush the Bavarians opposite them. It was decided to get a brigade trench mortar company to bombard the Germans inside the wood, while new attacks attacked the wood by trying to pincer it closed from the outside. The battery, consisting of eight Stokes mortars, had stockpiled hundreds of mortar rounds for just such an eventuality, and the crews now got down to creating an astonishing feat. Over the course of 15 minutes, 750 mortar rounds, each one loaded by hand, arced through the smoky and blood-scented air towards the Germans. Some men of the 47th reported seeing multiple mortar shells sailing through the air at once. The barrage laid down a devastating curtain of fire that awed the crouching Tommies. And it did the trick. This was too much. The Bavarians inside the wood, those who survived, fell apart and began to surrender. Tommies outside the woods swept up and passed it. Within hours, High Wood was declared secure. It had taken exactly two months for the British Fourth Army to seize this infernal 75-acre lot of hell on earth. Behind the lines, Third Corps Commander General William Pulteney thanked 47th Division's Major General Charles Barter by relieving him of his command. The charge cited was that Barter had been reckless with the lives of his men, but everyone knew it was that Barter had been forceful in speaking out against Pulteney's deadly inadequate plan. Post-war, Barter would tirelessly seek an official inquiry into his removal from command at High Wood. He never got it. He did get an unofficial acknowledgement that he'd been scapegoated at High Wood by Pulteney, but it was all he was to receive. So we'll stop here for now. Next episode, we're going to get into the right and center which will be the 14th and 15th Corps' attacks during the Battle of Flair Crosselette. To give credit where it is very much due, all of the personal accounts in this episode, and the following episode for that matter, have come from the following books. Christy Campbell's Band of Brigands, Lynn MacDonald's Psalm, Terry Norman's The Hell They Called High Wood, Jack Sheldon's The German Army on the Somme, and Paul Reed's Corselet. These books have been and continue to be invaluable resources. Thanks so much for the recent reviews. They're so helpful to the podcast. If you enjoy listening and want to help the BFWWP, please consider taking a moment to give us a review on iTunes. You can do this right through your smartphone in less than a minute, unless, of course, you'd like to add some words to the starred review. If you want to support the BFWWP, but are thinking you'd like to contribute financially, we've got two options for you. For one-time donations, we have a PayPal link on the website 
firstworldwarpodcast.com, where you can make a donation of your choice. If you'd like to make a recurring donation, please consider becoming a patron of the podcast through Patreon. You can find us there at patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. All donations are voluntary and can be in whatever amount you choose to give. It is all very much appreciated and it all goes towards server maintenance and the buying of new research materials for these episodes. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at www1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Many thanks, as always, for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.